And when there was a need to raise money, whether it was for churches and schools or hospitals or a family of a miner killed in a mining accident, well, Nellie would head downtown for the saloons or the brothels with her hat turned upside down and she always left with a hat full of money. The source of those donations never bothered her. She said one time, whether the money comes from an upstanding citizen or a member of an outlaw faction makes no difference to me, and the money doesn't know the difference either. In 1874, Nellie joins a party of 200 Nevada miners headed for the Cassiar Mountains in northern British Columbia, near the border of the Yukon. The region is practically unknown and all but inaccessible, but the miners, including Nellie, the only female, reach their destination and strike gold on the upper reaches of the Stikine River and along its major tributary, Dease Creek. It's only fall when winter comes to the Cassiars. The miners are caught unprepared for the heavy snowfalls and severe cold. As their supplies dwindle, dozens begin falling ill with scurvy. Their beloved Nellie is not among them. She left earlier for a vacation in Victoria on Vancouver Island. When word reaches Victoria, the miners are entrapped by snow and ice and suffering terribly. Nellie purchases 2,000 pounds of supplies, including plenty of lime juice, hires six men, and heads for Dease Creek. At Wrangell, Alaska, U.S. Customs officers try to dissuade her from what they term a mad trip. But Nellie pushes on. When the commander of Fort Wrangell hears that a woman is headed into the Cassiars, he dispatches a lieutenant with a squad of soldiers to rescue her. They don't catch up with Nellie until high up on the Stikine River. Nearly exhausted and suffering greatly from the cold, the soldiers find Nellie camped comfortably on the ice of this frozen Stikine. The lieutenant says she is cooking her evening meal by the heat of a wood fire and humming a lively air. The soldiers greatly accept her offer of hot coffee and food and return without her. The winter weather is so severe that people in coastal settlements think Nellie must have died. Here again is Jane Baker. There was a small avalanche and Nellie's tent was buried 10 feet deep in the snow. Now, when I heard about this, I wondered how did she figure out how to get out of there? Well, if you spit, your spit will go down. So what she did was spit and climb the opposite directions, and she, and she climbed out of the hole. She dug herself up out of it. After 77 days on the trail and digging herself out of a snowslide, Nellie reaches Dease Creek. Upon hearing of Nellie's trek, a newspaper called it an extraordinary feat by an indomitable female who possesses all the vivacity as well as the push and energy inherent to her race. With lime juice and good food, Nellie nurses every one of the 200 snowed-in miners back to good health. She is called the Angel of the Cassiars. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nellie Cashman here on Our American Stories. You're the angel 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with the story of Nellie Cashman. Nellie stays in British Columbia for another three years, operating her businesses and raising money to build St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria. In 1878, Nellie returns to San Francisco to visit her mother in the Cunninghams. Fanny and her husband now have three boys and two girls who love their Aunt Nell and are fascinated by her many adventures. A new mining strike soon sends Nellie to Tucson in Arizona Territory. She opens the Delmonico Restaurant, the first business in Tucson owned by a woman. But in 1880, she heads for the new silver strike at Tombstone. She takes over operation of the Russ House Hotel and within weeks becomes part owner. One of the prospectors she feeds for free in grub stakes is Edward Doheny, who later becomes one of America's great oil men. Not long after Nellie begins operating the Russ uh, House Hotel, her sister's husband dies of tuberculosis. Nellie rushes to San Francisco and brings Fanny and her children to Tombstone to live in a home immediately behind the Russ House. In 1883, Fanny dies of tuberculosis, and Aunt Nell finishes the job of rearing the Cunningham children. When Nellie arrives in Tombstone, there is no Catholic church. Here again is Marshall Trimble. In 1880, there was an article in the Tombstone Epitaph that said, Nellie Cashman, the irrepressible started out yesterday to raise funds for the building of a Catholic church. We don't know what success attended her first effort, but bet there is going to be a Catholic church and tombstone before many more days if Nellie has to build it herself. She convinces the owners of the Crystal Palace Saloon, one of the owners is Wyatt Earp, to allow Sunday services to be held there until a church is built. Nellie leads the way in fundraising for what becomes the Sacred Heart Church. Nellie also helps build the first school in Tombstone and the first non-military hospital in Arizona, St. Mary's in Tucson. She also establishes a fund for prospectors injured in mining accidents and serves as treasurer of Tombstone's chapter of the Land League of Ireland. Nellie becomes one of the most influential and respected figures in Tombstone. Here again is Jane Baker. During the time she was raising those kids in Tombstone, the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, and Nellie knew all of those players, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, all his brothers. She knew the mayor of Tombstone named John Clum, who thought she was absolutely wonderful and wrote uh, glowing reports of her. John Clum, the publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph and Tombstone's first mayor, said of Nellie, her frank manner, her self-reliant spirit, and her emphatic and fascinating Celtic brogue impressed me very much and indicated that she was a woman of strong character and marked individuality. Here's Marshall Trimble with another story exemplifying Nellie's servant's heart. During the Christmas season of 1883 in Bisbee, five men pulled a robbery, killing four people, 
including a pregnant woman. They were caught, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to hang. Nellie took it upon herself to be their mother confessor. And just before the hanging, an entrepreneur had built a grandstand outside the high walls of the Tombstone Courthouse and was selling tickets to watch the hanging. The outlaws pleaded with Nellie not to let their hanging become a public spectacle. So, the night before the event, Nellie and some friends arrived, late, late in the evening, with tools in hand, and they tore it down. After the five men were hanged, the authorities had planned to donate their bodies to medical science. But the condemned men protested to Nellie, so she saw to it that they were given a proper burial and hired a guard to protect their graves for several days. One day, a dying Mexican stumbles in a tombstone and collapses at the entrance to the Russ house. Nellie has him carried inside and put on a bed. Before he dies, he mutters to her, Mule, go to Mule. Gold nuggets are found in his pockets. Nellie and some 20 tombstone miners are soon exploring the desert inland from Mule in Baja, California. The party runs out of water, and several of the men are on the verge of death from dehydration. The Phoenix Herald newspaper reports that Nellie and two others have died of thirst. Actually, Nellie is in better shape than any of the men. She volunteers to go off on her own, assuring her fellow prospectors a good angel will guide her to water. She crosses miles of scorching desert and miraculously comes upon an isolated mission. Not pausing to rest, she organizes a rescue party and helps drive burrows loaded with goatskin sacks of water back to the miners. She arrives just in the nick of time. In 1895, at the age of 50, Nellie is still going strong when she arrives in Tucson. A newspaper reports, Yesterday, Tucson was visited by one of the most extraordinary women in America, Nellie Cashman, whose name and face have been familiar to every important mining camp or district on the coast for more than 20 years. She rode into the town from Casa Grande on horseback, a jaunt that would nearly have prostrated the average man with fatigue. She showed no sign of weariness and went about town in that calm, business-like manner that belongs particularly to her. When news of the great strike in the Klondike reaches the States, Nellie is off for the far north immediately. She arrives in Dai, Alaska during March 1898 and becomes one of the first women to take the steep Chilkoot Pass Trail. At the summit on the Canadian border, the Mounties required each stampeder to pack 2,000 pounds of supplies or they wouldn't let them in. I guess he didn't want American citizens to perish on Canadian soil. Well, 54-year-old Nellie had to make several trips up the snowpack trail, but she was able to pass inspection. And then while waiting for the ice to thaw, she built a raft and then floated 500 miles down the Yukon River to reach Dawson, braving a series of fierce rapids along the way. Nellie soon opens a restaurant and a grocery store, which includes a small library that becomes known as the Prospector's Haven of Rest. A newspaper reports, her entrance into a saloon or dance hall is the signal for every man in the place to stand. Nellie has always done well, 
but she really strikes it rich in the Klondike. Her claim on Bonanza Creek pays her more than $100,000, equivalent to $3 million in today's money. Nellie continues living and prospecting in the Yukon and Alaska for another 25 years. She becomes an expert musher, more than once driving teams of dogs through the snow for hundreds of miles. Here's Marshall. In 1923, at the age of 78, she mushed a dog sled team 350 miles in just 17 days. Newspapers all over Alaska carried the story of that intrepid lady named Nellie Cashman. During the fall of 1924, her fabled health finally begins to fail. She dies at age 79 in January 1925 in St. Joseph's Hospital, which she had helped build nearly 50 years earlier. Nellie was single all her life. She had several proposals. She was a very pretty woman, but she never married. And when asked if she ever feared for her safety, being the only woman among so many rough-hewn men, she replied sweetly, If you act like a lady, men will always treat you like one. Shortly before she dies, a reporter asks her if she ever feared for her virtue while living in all-male mining camps or prospecting on wild frontiers. She replies, Bless your soul, no. I never have had a word said to me out of the way. The boys would sure see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense. And thanks to Roger McGrath for that storytelling, and he's told so many good ones here on this show. Also thanks to Greg Hengler. And Roger is a professor in Southern California, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. That's Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Nellie Cashman's story, and it's a remarkable one, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, and of course, your stories too, and you can send them to ouramericannetwork.org, they're some of the very best we've produced, and again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And today we bring you the story of an unlikely friendship in the antebellum South that's at the heart of a household name the legacy that that left on a town, and a new Tennessee whiskey that commemorates it all. Jack Daniels is the oldest registered whiskey distillery in the United States and the top-selling American whiskey around the world. It's named for its founder, Jasper Jack Daniels. But this isn't the story of Jack Daniels. Well, not exactly. 
but it shares the same hometown of Lynchburg, Tennessee. It's the tale of two whiskeys. Uncle Nearest. And it's, it's named after this, um, this man who was the first master distiller on record in the United States who was black. Actor Jeffrey Wright has partnered with the people behind Uncle Nearest Whiskey to tell the story behind the new spirit and its namesake. And um, there was a young boy uh, who came to work for him when he was eight years old. His mother had died when he was four months old. His father passed away at some point when he was young uh, as well. He went to work for Uncle Nearest, and uh, whose services were being rented by the owner of this farm. And this young boy was a good, hard worker, and he did all these various chores, but he was curious about what Uncle Nearest did. And Uncle Nearest t- took him in under his wing and taught him how to be uh, a master uh, distiller. Um, so... Uncle Nearest has this new bottle named after him because of it. And the young boy, his name was Jack Daniel. Uncle Nearest was founded by a woman named Fawn Weaver, right, who read the same article that I read in the New York Times about two years ago, uh, who's out in L.A., and she got on a plane and went to Lynchburg and started researching this history because she was as moved by the story as I was. It's just, I just love our history. Because our history is so much more complicated when the, and, and beautiful when the whole story is told, you know. And this story just is, uh, is one example of that. Nathan Nearest Green. You know, because when you, just because you were a slave didn't mean you couldn't be a genius, too. Von Weaver on the story she uncovered. This is one story that refuses to die. It's literally come up probably about every decade where it's the story of Nearest Green, and and we were able to piece together that he is the first African-American master distiller. He was Jack Daniels' teacher, his mentor, his friend. The story is in around 1820 in Maryland, and a slave was born. And we don't know what happened between that time and the time we see him in a city called Lynchburg, Tennessee, around the mid-1850s. And he's the, the head distiller at this farm, for a preacher and a distiller. And this guy has to make a decision. Do I continue to be in the whiskey business? And my church is telling me you have to choose. You have to be a preacher, you have to be a distiller. And so he chose being a preacher, Mm -hmm. but he still wanted to make money. So he allowed the still to be run solely by an African-American man. That did not happen. There was always a white boss. And so around the middle of the 1850s, a, a young, kid comes who lost his mother at four months old, a white kid, and he shows up and he's a chore boy. He is not a privileged kid. He is not someone who is higher than nearest. He found comfort in, as you will, as a teacher, as a mentor, just happened to be African-American. It's one of those great stories that out of the ugliest time in American history arises a beautiful story. And fast forward, He wants to learn the whiskey business, and Nearest takes him under his wing and begins to teach this young white kid how to do whiskey Mm -hmm. his way. And essentially, the only difference between bourbon, which most people know, and Tennessee whiskey, is the process that Nearest taught. So Nearest's whiskey was the best in the land because of a process that more likely than not came from West Africa, which is a, a filtering through charcoal, through maple sugar maple charcoal. 
And, and so once it goes through there, it just makes a superior whiskey. Not much is known about Nathan Nearest Green, but we do know that when Jack opened the doors to his distillery in 1866, Nearest was there. So he was freed. He was Jack's first master distiller. We know that he was the master distiller until at least 1881, where the first Jack Daniel distillery is located. So it's about 313 acres where Jack grew up, where Nearest taught Jack, where the original still, where the water still flows and all the rest of that, we own that. So that 313 acre property and, and the home and the old still and all the rest of that stuff. Jack was a good dude and he had a great relationship with Nearest and Nearest's voice. Not only was he paid to run his distillery, but he was the well wealthiest African-American in the area. He, his boys, his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, you could go through Lynchburg and I can point out all the land that they owned. It wasn't small. In this case, no, no credit was stolen. I will be, I can confirm that because every single day, a day doesn't go by where I am not on the phone, on text, on email with Nearest's family. And the thing that they are very clear about is Nearest's name was not forgotten because of that white young boy who everyone else now knows to be Jack Daniel. His real name mm. is Jasper Newton Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, in Lynchburg, we all call him Uncle Jack. But it is, his family is very clear in wanting to make sure that in this process of honoring Nearest, that we do not forget that Jack honored Nearest when he was alive. Nearest and his boys were mentioned 50 times in Jack's biography. Fawn Weaver's business partner and entertainment mogul, Kenny Burns. The story of Uncle Nearest is not a super divided story. No. It's not a super no. blacks got treated so bad, right? No. Mm -hmm. The community in which they live, and of course things happen. That was the era, that was the norm, right? But the story, which was gonna make an incredible movie, is that this was a very close-knit community that really yeah. loved each other, you know? And it's, it's amazing to hear stories like this, because these aren't the stories we hear from that era. I met with, I interviewed over 100 people for this, descendants of both Jack and Nearest, and every elder African-American, and by elder I mean like 75 and up, and there's a lot of them there, surprisingly, every single one that I would interview and say, when you talk about race relations when you were growing up, would you say it was like 60-40, 70-30, 80-20 in terms of negative to po or positive to negative? Every single one said 90-10. 90 positive, 10 negative. You're talking about people that are 70, 80, right. 90 years old. It's easier to tell a story that's negative because the stories that are positive are nuanced. And no one wants nuance. Everyone wants 140 characters. And what a story that was we just listened to. And so true those words are. It's easier to tell a story that's negative. If it bleeds, it leads. And as you can tell from our American stories, we do the opposite. And we'll leave others to handle those kinds of stories. Race relations were 90% positive and 10% negative. And here on Our American Stories, we think that there are so many good stories like this all over the country, not just now, but in our history, that that's what we're sticking to. And Uncle Nearest and Tennessee Whiskey, a story you don't hear anywhere else, on the radio, on podcasts. And again, send your stories to us. And again, it could be something you've stumbled onto that you think we should be covering. It just doesn't have to be your personal narrative. Let us know. You're our eyes and our ears. And of course, you're our listeners too. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Uncle Nearest Tennessee Whiskey. Used to spend my nights out in ballroom. Liquor was the only love I'd known. But you rescued me from reaching for the bottom. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fastbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. Who's that? he asked, peeking around my shoulder. My mom, when she was young. What's she sitting on? A paper moon. They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. People liked to pose for pictures on them. That's dumb. It doesn't even look like a real moon. After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your grandma Sylvia. He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me, leaning his warm body against my arm. He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. Who will that be to me? He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago. Max shrugged and resumed his ball tossing. I already got a grandfather he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm, too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. What about them? he asked, 
pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet, he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. "'Whoa!' he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight-ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. 
I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? 
And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story. Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I'm gonna wait till the midnight Johnny Carson, well, he legitimized late-night television. He launched hundreds of careers dominated the ratings landscape, and taught everyone how to do what he did. Only no one could do it like he did it. And nobody ever has. And so for the hour, we're going to spend time on this man, all the people he influenced, and most importantly, with his great generosity, all the people he championed, all, all of the artists in particular, and all of the comedians. So many of whom wouldn't be here without Johnny Carson. In 1962... Back when Johnny Carson hosted ABC's Who Do You Trust? A game show he launched with a newly hired unknown sidekick, Ed McMahon. He made this announcement to the world. I go over to uh, on The Tonight Show on NBC starting October the 1st as the host of that show. And Ed goes with me as the announcer on the show. So I'm gonna... And so it started. A legend was born. And the question became, as in every artistic endeavor... By the way, this happens when a marriage starts. It starts this kind of conversation when a business starts or any kind of partnership. If you're lucky enough to have one that endured like Carson's did with Ed McMahon, what were they going to talk about? What were they going to do? So as we're walking down, I said, how do you see my role down here tonight? And he said, Ed, I don't even know how I see my own role. Let's just go down and entertain the hell out of them. kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time and the newspapers and the magazines and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this and you get kind of charged up I don't mean to be maudlin about it but I know that tonight a lot of people a lot of my friends are watching all over the country and I only have one feeling as I, I stand here knowing that so many people are watching I want my man there <laughs> And he started right there with his trademark self-deprecation. He loved to make fun of himself. And I think he put everyone at ease because of it. Carson was born in Iowa on October 23, 1925. And when he was eight, his family moved to Norfolk, Nebraska, where father Kit Carson worked for the local power company. 
Johnny had a younger brother, Dick, and an older sister, Catherine, who was the favorite of the mother, Ruth. Mrs. Carson later said that she didn't like boys. They were dirty and nasty and not pleasant, she said. Actually, she's pretty right. We are pretty dirty and we are pretty unpleasant. I'm not sure about the nasty part. In the later years, when he revisited his childhood home, he explained to Wayne, the boy who was the current resident and whom you're about to hear from, the lengths to which he would go to get his mom's attention. Hi, how you doing? You're Wayne, right? I met you before. Hasn't changed too much, outside of the interior decoration. Dad, I've heard your dad put in that fireplace. My dad put that fireplace in, and I used to sit with a deck of cards. I did magic when I was about your age. Every place in the house, I had a deck of cards in my hand. Driving my mother crazy. My mother would be upstairs in the bathroom. Now, you may not believe this, but I would go into the bathroom and say, take a card. <laughs> that was Carson. By the way, he had taped this, played it on a special. He'd return to his home, his old home, to see what it was like and... Just the way he dealt with his kid, you know, one of the unique qualities we'll learn about Carson is we go on, no matter who sat in that chair, presidents, ordinary Americans doing bird calls, singers like Frank Sinatra, rock artists, he treated them all the same. None of them got preferred status or diminished status. He just played it even. And he just loved, he loved, loved, loved people. As Johnny got older, he had new reasons for perfecting his magic which became his all-consuming interest, where he learned the craft of illusion, of becoming bigger, of projecting and misdirecting and giving you a greater sense of something that maybe wasn't always entirely him. I took up magic uh, when I was young yes. because I was somewhat shy and within myself, and I thought well, that would be a good way to go to parties. Yeah. You know, I read those ads, yeah. you know, be and the life girls. of the party and get girls. Yeah. Mainly I got it, uh, did it to get girls. <laughs> Neither one worked well. But lots of people do that. They'd like to get up and perform. You can be the center of attention without being yourself as such. Yeah, you'll hear about that. We'll be doing uh, next week an hour on Al Pacino and his craft, and you'll learn that Pacino had the same thing to say. So many of these guys, you would not think it. It's very counterintuitive. But they do all the things they do because they're shy. This is the only way they can communicate to folks. Lots of musicians share that same characteristic. Arsenio Hall, host of the breakout late-night Arsenio Hall show from the 1990s, illustrates, well, one of the other things that Carson had going for him, and it wasn't just humility. It was a near-perfect sense of timing. He had the perfect barometer in his head of when to go and when to stay out. He could save you if the show needed it, or he could let you do your thing. His ego could let you do your thing. And this is what made Carson great in the end. Joan Rivers, well... She agreed with him. He knew where you were going. He knew when to come in and say, how fat was she? He knew when not to say it. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. <laughs> you knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. Bumping in and out here, you're going to be hearing many of the people who sang on The Tonight Show and you're going to be hearing their performances. This is Cindy Lauper playing her big hit time after time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on Johnny Carson. You'll hear from Jerry Seinfeld, Drew Carey, and so many other big, big modern comedian 
and modern stars. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've got a song, I ain't got no melody, I'm gonna sing it to my friend. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, you're listening to Billy Preston. That was him singing on the Tonight Show set. We had just heard from Arsenio Hall and Joan Rivers about Johnny Carson's real, genuine Genuine gift of generosity. Here's Jerry Seinfeld's very first appearance on The Tonight Show. My folks are moving to Florida. Uh, they don't want to move to Florida, but they're in their 60s, and that's the law. <laughs> Long Island. You're, I think you evicted from Long Island, aren't yeah, you? 60? They, they have like a leisure police of some kind. <laughs> get the golf clubs, get in the van, folks. You know. Listen to Carson laughing. See, the thing is, he wanted his guys to do great when they appeared. Some stars don't want to see the people sitting next to him do better than them. This was the key to Carson. Leno couldn't replicate this. Letterman couldn't replicate this because their egos were too big. Colbert, Stewart, loved them, but they never made their guests funnier. And this is why none of them held a candle to Carson. And they all looked up to Carson as a genius, but didn't quite understand the, the reason he was. Want to play a... A clip now, and Carson was so generous with this guy. Uh, every time he came on, Carson would just set him up and set him up and set him up. And it's the one and only Rodney Dangerfield. Smoking, that's another one. Try to stop smoking. That's a beauty, huh? Well, with cigarettes, my wife and I, we made a deal, my wife and I. We only smoke after sex. i got the same pack now since 1975. <laughs> what bothers me is my wife. She's up to three packs a day. <laughs> Tell you the truth, and my wife and I, we never have sex. No. Now we get undressed, we can't stop laughing, you know. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, when my wife does have sex, she screams. Ooh, especially when I walk in on her. <laughs> and on and on. I mean, Dangerfield could knock out a hundred jokes in a in, in a seven to eight minute hit. We hear now from a grateful and emotionally moved. Drew Carey describing his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Curtain opens, you know, Johnny Carson introduces me, and it's just like I dreamed it. It's just exactly like I dreamed it. I go on a stage, I hit the mark. Then he says my favorite thing on the menu, it's a hot dog with cheese and bacon. Yeah, not enough nitrates in a hot dog, I gotta put some bacon on top of there. And for an extra dollar, they'll put chili on top of the whole thing. For people who don't care anymore. I remember seeing Johnny Carson holding onto the desk. He's holding onto the desk because he's laughing so hard so he doesn't fall off the chair. 
because he's like, he's like convulsing. That's the kind of food just marches right down your throat, you know? <laughs> Follow me, boys. We're going to the heart. <laughs> and he goes like this. And I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I, I'm like, oh, no, nobody gets called over for the tonight. That's a big thing. It's like a religious experience. And then after that, my career was made. Funny as hell. Thanks, I appreciate that. You really are. Thanks. You too. And you know, he said you too back to Carson, and Carson laughed. He didn't say, hey, kid, what are you doing? And he laughed, you know, just naturally. If you're like me when you think of Carson, memories of your family pop into your head too. Because nighttime is one of those rare times in our day when the family can get together under one roof. Here's late-night host Conan O'Brien. My dad would always say the same thing. Let's just watch the monologue. We'll watch a little bit of the monologue. I'm laughing and my father's laughing. And how, mu- how often can you watch something with your father, you know? Okay. He crossed generations, I think. Yeah, and especially making a father and a son laugh together. So many shows now separate generations out, and Carson's brought them together. A unique talent. In 30 years, you'd be hard-pressed to guess who Johnny ever voted for. And this was another one of his gifts, unlike so many of the late-night hosts, too, who let you know who they vote for, thus alienating half the audience. They just tune out. Well, that's the way it should be, actually. Why alienate your audience? Why alienate your own people? Here's Jay Leno. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never question anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. (laughs) Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis, lost his voice. And I do have a late-breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm... I'm just kidding, of course. Not really. I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. (laughs) You know, in order to avoid looking partisan, Carson would avoid, well, almost any invitations from any big political figures. Hillary and Bill. He declined the invitation. He also had said once, I was photographed at the White House with Hubert Humphrey, and I'm sorry I did that. What was obvious then and is even more obvious now is that Carson's unwillingness to allow his personal politics to insult his audience is the kind of old-school showbiz class that's all but extinct today. Here's Johnny on that very subject. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. Uh, I try not to, uh, and we've had some criticism on the show. Some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value. It's not controversial. It's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. It's a hard thing to admit with that much power. I mean, there weren't many wealthier guys in Hollywood, and I think so often today people get out of their lane and try and get into another lane. Musicians do this all the time. They're singing, you've paid your ticket, you've paid your dollar, and there they go. And you just want to tell them, shut up. They'll opine about the war. And, and it just, why do it? Why bother? Carson, no such thing. 
In addition to hosting the show, Johnny loved to appear in sketches. He learned a lot from the Carol Burnett show in this way. And he also created a characters, characters through which he could disappear and engage in a more daring brand of humor, one of them being Karnak the Great. A losing streak. A losing streak. <laughs> Describe a man running naked after chugging prune juice. He didn't mind making a complete idiot of himself. He'd wear that hat in that scene. He would walk up. That little Alibaba music would play. He would come on over, do the pratfall over the desk. Every time, trip, it would break. He'd sit down, and they did this every week on Tuesday night. Forever. Never let it go. Here's Conan O'Brien on why he thinks we all loved and watched Johnny Carson. I don't think anybody was watching Johnny Carson to rate how his material was. Do you know what I mean? You liked him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. I think we liked him so much because one of the things Carson did, and did beautifully, was share his flaws, even the painful parts of his life, with his audience. Here's Carson on his, his divorce I suppose the lowest, lowest point I had was when I, when I, was my first divorce. Because my children were quite young, and that sense of failure uh, overcomes you, uh, that you have uh, been less than you should have as a husband or a father, mm. and those guilt feelings can be overwhelming at times, especially if the children are young. That's probably one of the big low points I had. Well, it ends up he had more divorces. And he shared them with the audience. And most importantly, he allowed his staff to heckle him, and he even heckled himself. The decision you have to make is how do you want to handle it? You don't want to be bitter about it. You don't wish to uh, do any jokes that are cruel or to hurt anyone. So you try to turn it and take the, the joke on yourself if you can. And have fun with it, your, the situation. Uh, and that's what you do. You just sit and you... It's a gut instinct. What a gut he had... Here's Johnny. Well, cracking jokes on Johnny. I heard from my cat's lawyer today. <laughs> my, my cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. My cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. Johnny's making fun of how much money he's going to have to pay out. He's making fun of an acrimonious divorce in which someone he's been married to maybe a couple of years is taking, well, probably half of everything. And... What kind of men do this? And this is truly the greatness of Johnny Carson. Today for the hour, we're going to talk about the man. We're going to hear his work, his art. We're going to play lots more clips so you can just hear, well, our favorites. And you're listening to Tiny Tim because there was no kind of musical act Johnny didn't parade before the American public. And none was more comical and entertaining and endearing than Tiny, Tim, him, her, whatever. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've worked hard and I fight hard for the old red, white, and blue. And I'll die a whole lot harder if it comes to where I have to. I'm a flag-waving, patriotic nephew of my Uncle Sam, a rough This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Johnny Cash singing on The Tonight Show. And we had just listened to Tiny Tim. That's some really smart booking. You got to love that about Johnny. So often people will just go with a certain musical style. A, they're cutting off their audience. And B, who the heck are they to say one kind of music's better? Just play it all. And he let them all come through. He was really ecumenical and generous that way. And, you know, we couldn't get over it over the break. And we said, we just need some more, well, Rodney Dangerfield. Now, you kid, I know my wife cheats on me. Every time I come home, the parrot says, quick, out the window, you know? I mean, my house, my house, I can't relax. Really? I, got my, I got a dog, he drives me nuts. Oh. I got a dumb dog, you know, we call him Egypt. Every room, he leaves a pyramid. <laughs> my kids, they don't help either. You no know. good. Huh? Ooh, no. My kids, they're real smart kids, I got, you know. But yeah. well, the other day, I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so are you. <laughs> Mean kid, a very mean kid. He scots taste worms to the sidewalk, then watches the birds get hernias. Are you kidding me? Mean. mean kid. Mean kid. And my daughter, too. She's no bargain either, my daughter. Are you kidding? Well, she's been picked up so many times, she's starting to grow handles. I mean, you're kidding. Her graduation book, her picture is horizontal. It's ridiculous. Strange. My daughter, they call her Federal Express, you know. What's that? Yeah, when she goes to a guy's apartment, she absolutely positively has to be there with <laughs> I mean, I tell you, trouble with kids. They play around so young today, very young. I was talking to my doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombach. You know my doctor? <laughs> well, he told me last week in his office he got six cases of VD. I mean, he's all right now, you know. <laughs> Oh, he's a strange doctor. Strange doctor. Oh, very yeah. good. I asked him if my heart was strong enough to sex. He told me not if I join in, you know? <laughs> oh, yes, right, Doc. But everyone wants love. Love is the answer, John. Everyone's looking so. for love. Deep love. A lifetime of deep love, you know? I'm looking for a shallow half hour, you know? <laughs> and there you have it. What Carson would do is just set him up. He'd just ask a question and let Rodney take the stage. How many guys do that? They get in the way. About the closest Carson came to explaining himself is in this vintage Tonight Show clip in which he's talking to celebrity interviewer Rona Barrett. She takes the opportunity to ask him questions, which, for a while, he answers with surprising honesty. But then, well, she asks one question too many. Here we go. I grew up in the Midwest, kind of a normal, I guess what you'd call normal upbringing, you know, the part of the country. Uh, my, my folks were supportive in what I wanted to do. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. From oh, the very yeah. beginning? Oh, sure. How old? Well, I must have been about 12, 13 years old. I knew I wanted to, to entertain. You like the attention? Oh, sure. But why? Why you? I mean, why at age 12 or 13? 
because I was in a play or something and I got up and I did something and people laughed and all of a sudden you say hey that sounds pretty good so it makes you the center of attention yes but why did you want the attention hmm? why did you want the attention? why did I want the attention because I was shy ah because I was shy oh that sounds like a, a ambivalence right no on stage you see when you're on stage in front of an audience you are kind of in control when you're off of the stage or in a situation where there are a lot of people you're not in control and I felt awkward so I went into show business thinking it would give me a little more I could overcome that shyness where do you think the shyness emanated from I, I bought it in Chicago <laughs> enough, enough Johnny was saying with this line of inquiry though he let it go pretty far and again most hosts wouldn't let the person sitting there ask them questions. Again, Johnny's generous nature, but also this great gut to know what is entertaining and also when not to be entertaining. Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, who ended his own show on his own terms years later, understands more than most what Carson really meant to late night TV. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get the Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. Leno took it over. And now we've got, well, we know who we've got there now. Jimmy Fallon's doing his best. And these guys are good. But uh, Carson was unique. And it was, I think, because he just didn't try too hard. He just laid back and let others fill the slot. Carson walked away from The Tonight Show after 30 years at the top of the late night ratings and of his own volition. By the way, we should do an entire hour on people who actually retired, well, way too long. And how many actually retire at the right time? I mean, think about it. Think of athletes. Think of Michael Jordan. I mean, he stepped away, and then he went and played baseball. And he looked ridiculous. And then he came back to the NBA, and he was getting the ball stripped of him, and he just looked terrible. Trying to think of the boxers who didn't. I mean, Joe Lewis kept boxing. It was just a tragedy. Muhammad Ali kept going. I mean, who did? Rocky Marciano retired right. Johnny Carson retired right. Led Zeppelin just said, you know what? We're done. John Bonham died, and they said, let's not look ridiculous. But I, I really, that's about it. Jesse, you can think of anybody? only person that comes to mind right now is Tiger Woods. He should probably hang out right about now. I think right about now is a good time. <laughs> a very good time. And then all these bands that just keep touring perpetually in their 80s, they're going to be out there touring. That's just... Yeah, the Stones might want to consider maybe one more tour and then calling it good. Yeah, the Steel Wheelchairs Tour. <laughs> We had, a, we had a couple of buddies one night. We were going to see the Stones about a year ago, and we started making up songs that would be age-appropriate. Because, you know, they're, you know, like just waiting on a friend, we, we thought that would be better if it was just called Just Waiting on the End. <laughs> and, and just so on and so forth. Hey, hey, you, get off of my cloud, was like, hey, hey, you, kids, get out of my yard. And, and it was, I know, I got to stop. <laughs> I got to keep my day job. Well, when we come back, we're going to be doing some more and playing a lot more from Johnny Carson. And uh, we'll do a little bit more Ronnie Dangerfield because, well, of all the folks that Carson ever had, well, that was his favorite. Dwight Yoakam, by the way, was born today. He had the most musical appearances of anybody in the Tonight Show history. 
And we'll play a little of his music coming in off of the Tonight Show. And we're also going to play Jimmy Stewart's remarkable poem to his dog, Bo. Stewart, who had always talked about his, his dog fondly with Carson, gave him a buzz one night and said, Johnny, I want to come on. And by the way, that was the other beautiful thing about Carson. The guys did not come on to plug their movies. I mean, Carson didn't allow for that. You came on, you did a great eight or ten minutes of entertainment. That's that. And yet, if you had a movie every once in a while, he'd let you plug it. But you better give him a solid eight, nine, or ten appearances first. And you better be good. You're going to hear Jimmy Stewart's remarkable performance. And then you'll hear, of course, Bette Midler's last performance on the final night of The Tonight Show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Kenny Rogers singing on The Tonight Show. Lee Habib. More on Johnny Carson when we come back. Out the window to boredom overtook us. And he began to speak. He said, son, I've made my life out of reading people's faces, knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American Stories. That's Dwight Yoakam and Buck Owens appearing together on the set of The Tonight Show. Again, every kind of musical style. It, it, Appreciated and admitted. Carson held back nobody. Again, Tiny Tim we had just broken into before. Carson, again, was born on this day in history in 1925. He died on January 23rd, 2005 from emphysema. He was 79 years old. And looking back on Carson's life, his biographer Bill Zeem had this to say on Carson's formula for success. In the end, he put out a better product across the board, and it was because he was smart enough to know how to give room to funny people or to engaging people and and let them shine. And let them shine he did. You know, one of the great moments, I think, in late-night history, Jimmy Stewart would come on regularly, and he would just come on and tell stories. He, He was way past the point of his career where he was doing a movie every year, and it was just wonderful, and he was always prepared with something you could tell that was rehearsed, often even written. And in this particular clip, Johnny invites Jimmy on to talk about, well, his dog, Bo. And Jimmy, you're going to hear a little fumbling, and you're going to hear Carson crack a joke. It's because Jimmy's sort of fumbling with his paper. He pulls out of his suit 
because this one he has to read, Jimmy Stewart. Here we go. I just, uh, I, I just thought I'd uh, write, write a poem. You want, you want to hear Please, it? Oh, yes. You want to hear it? Now, that's... Uh, uh, well... We could always start the. They could always start the wedding late, I guess. Now, the, the title of it is "It's Bo." That's that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball, or he felt like it. But, but mo- mostly, he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. <laughs> he'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. <laughs> he bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. <laughs> The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. Suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And... He'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out to stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He'd he'd wake up at night, and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things. And he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us, and I pat his head. And there are nights... When I, when I think I feel that stare and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair and he's not there, oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. Thank you. 
It was the one time I ever saw Carson cry. He held back the tears. So did Jimmy Stewart. I don't think Carson was expecting that. I don't think anybody was, and that was the beauty of that show. Tune in the late night and see if you ever experienced that. And it was always possible on the Carson show. You could laugh, but my goodness, he could also make you cry. Dennis, you're calling in from Chicago. Your moment with your dad. Share that with us if you could. Absolutely, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity to share this story with you and your audience. So when I was a little boy, first and second grade, I would often get up late in the night, late for me, and sneak out, and there would be my dad watching the Johnny Carson show on a singular chair in the middle of the living room on the council TV. And my dad was kind-hearted enough to let me jump on his lap and watch the Carson show for 10 or 15 minutes with him before he would shoot me back to bed. And we had a wonderful time with that together every now and then. And back about oh, three days after Christmas, when I was in first or second grade, Johnny Carson told a joke about Santa Claus. And the joke implied that Santa Claus really doesn't exist. And then Johnny caught himself. He said, oops, there may be some naughty boys and girls still awake. And I just gave up the ghost that Santa doesn't exist. And so I shot a look up at my dad, and I asked him, I said, Dad, is this true? And he looked down at me and said, Son, Santa Claus is right here. And he pointed to his back pocket where his wallet was. <laughs> he said, <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for that story, for the memories. I know so many listening have them, and uh, I know that memory is one that's close to you. You can hear it in your voice. Thanks for calling. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Well, on the last night of his broadcast, Bette Midler came out, and she closed the proceedings. And Bette, people don't know this about her, was a remarkable singer in her early years in the 70s down in New York City uh, and down into particular neighborhoods where torch singers and balladeers played. She was gifted. She went on to act, and people don't know this part of her career. But Bette came out, she was the last performer, and this is what she did for Johnny. Well, that's how it goes. And John, I know you're getting anxious to close. So thanks for the cheer. I hope you didn't mind me. Bending your ear For all of the years For the laughs, for the tears For the class that you showed Make it one for my baby And one
Doesn't get much better than that, folks. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, we covered the life of Johnny Carson. And it's interesting where he came from, because he also attributed so much of his success to that small town in Nebraska. Right square in the middle of the country. Solid family upbringing. Solid, solid life. And he just, again, so generous, shining a light on others. The last thing he did in his life on the air was shining a light on Bette Midler's remarkable talent and simply reacting to it. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away.